As most of you know, I uh, have a part-time job as a professor of communications at Providence Christian College, and uh, this is my favorite time of year, uh, where you finish the semester and you have like three weeks where you don't have to do anything. It's really fun. So I've got my finals to grade, deposit those bad boys into the system, and then I've got three weeks of just enjoying the Christmas season with my church family, so this is really, really fun for me, not to mention it's college football bowl season, so this is really dream time for me. It's really that way for students post-Thanksgiving every year. They come back from Thanksgiving break, and they literally have two, maybe three weeks total of school left, and if you went to college, you understand this. You're like, there's a reinvigoration that takes place in the enthusiasm level of students because they recognize, okay, i got finals coming up, so I've got to really buckle down. But you get a sense that I'm almost to Christmas vacation. And so there's this joy that, that comes. It's a, a, an invigoration, a reinvigoration of the will. Um, it, it's, it's really what hope, the definition of real hope is. Most of you have a sense of that, too, if you know you have some vacation time coming up. You're like, you know, I know that I'm going to be off in a couple of weeks or I have a couple more days and then I'm going to get, you know, an extended weekend. And you can even sense that, that joy. It makes working easier. It makes living easier. It makes getting along with others in the workplace easier. And this is Advent hope experienced practically. Advent hope, which is really gospel hope, is about knowing and being confident that something is going to happen and having it buoy your spirits and give you joy. Now, for clarity's sake, the word hope gets used two different ways. It's the same word, and throughout the Bible, they'll use it two different ways. In one way, it gets used as a verb, and in another way, it gets used as a noun. And, and in type one of hope, we will say things like, I sure hope this works out for us, or I hope I get a B in that class, which was, of course, my standard. <laughs> Most people are like, I hope I get an A, and my wife laughs at me that I was like hoping for Bs, you know, that kind of guy. Um, so that's really more like wishing. Uh, then hope type two is, I know this is going to happen, so I have hope. And if you're using the first definition of hope for the kind talked about as it regards Advent and Christmas, it's going to be a bit confusing to you. You may have to rethink how you've been reading scriptures and even actually singing Christmas carols. Biblical hope is a confident expectation and desire for something good that is for certain coming in the future. Biblical hope not only desires something good for the future, it expects it to happen. It not only expects it to happen, it's confident it's going to happen. And that is what we're talking about when we talk about Advent hope. R.C. Sproul once wrote, Paul's use of the word hope isn't the way we use the term today to refer to things that are uncertain. He and the other biblical authors talk about hope that is certain hope that cannot fail, and hope that will never disappoint or embarrass you. I've intentionally been rereading a lot of what Dr. Sproul has said in the past because this past Thursday, 
uh, Professor Sproul passed away. One of America's great theologians and uh, who happened to be one of the professors I had in seminary. Uh, and many of us who were his students or who had read his books or seen him in conferences uh, were sad for a wide variety of reasons. But I can assure you that while I wasn't close to him and he wouldn't have known me by name, uh, the, the people that are close to him and uh, you could tell by anything he'd ever written that he did not die without hope. He was not hoping he was going to heaven. He was so confident in the gospel, he was certain he was going to heaven. Because his definition of what it meant to be rooted and secure in the gospel meant he was getting the credit for what Jesus had done for him. Hope. Dr. Sproul lived it. It's what fueled his ministry and life. And that's really how it's supposed to be for us. So today we take a look at Advent hope. And as my personal tribute to Professor Sproul, I, I want to share a couple of his thoughts as we study today's text, which is also ironic because I had planned this text for the discussion of hope long before I knew Dr. Sproul was obviously going to pass away. This is what he would call a, class, a locus classicus. This is a classical location for the discussion about God's sovereignty and enabling us to understand the gospel, his sovereignty in our salvation, God's oversight of all things, including everyone who would believe. Ephesians chapter 1 is... Uh, a passage of scripture that he taught through exhaustively through the course of his life and wrote about in great detail in his book, Chosen by God. So here I am talking about biblical hope from a passage that was dear to this man's teaching ministry and heart. And, and I begin today by announcing, as did the Apostle Paul to the Ephesians, and what we are actually doing at Advent season Advent hope announces our inheritance. Let me read the passage and then we'll unpack it a bit. Ephesians 1, 11 and 12. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. The Ephesians chronologically were the first to hope in Christ. They were the first ones to be assured that Christ had died for them. They were first-generation Christians. And so they had the privilege of being the ones to lead the way in terms of experiencing the kind of hope we're talking about. And Paul was announcing to them that they've been gloriously adopted into the family of God, and hence they've obtained an inheritance. Now, some people I know have been born into very wealthy families, and when it comes time for uh, an inheritance to be discussed, it becomes an issue within the family. Uh, for others who've come from you know, modest family backgrounds. They're, this isn't a big topic of discussion. Uh, this isn't an issue that splits families that have very little to divide amongst themselves. 
So sometimes it may be difficult to imagine what it would be like to inherit unbelievable sums, vast amounts of wealth. In our case, the inheritance that we're going to receive um, is going to make wealth and gold and all that seem silly. It's an inheritance of getting to be in the presence of God Almighty for all of eternity and be at complete and total peace with him and get to live with each other in eternity the way we were created to exist before the fall. Our inheritance is about so much more than, than anything we could ever possess in this world. And you and I have been promised that we are co-heirs with Christ. The first section of this letter to the Ephesians is really one long sentence in Greek. There's no punctuation. We're reading the last three verses that serve to assure us that if we are genuinely in Christ, this is what God has planned for all of eternity. This is not something that happened by chance. Uh, The theologian D.A. Carson contends that this section of Scripture is best understood as a prayer from Paul to lift our eyes away from ourselves, from our fears, and look to the majesty and love of God that has been revealed in his unfolding plan. In Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, and this is our hope. And in this case, the hope we have in Christ is made possible by the determined purpose of God to work all things according to the counsel of his will. The reason we can have confidence is because God had planned to do this from all eternity. Paul announces this as we do during this season when we celebrate the plan for God to send a Savior to rescue us. Paul announces that God has determined from all eternity to rescue his children. This is all working out how he exactly planned it to. And so there's great confidence that we can have. It's, it's what roots us and gives us certainty. The Savior has come. We sing, O holy night, the stars are brightly shining. It's the night of our dear Savior's birth. So many in our culture will sing this song without any real sense of what they are singing about. Why do we need a Savior? Long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. See, the reason we have a Savior come to us is to save us from our sin, our error, that which has separated us from God. We are weary and he comes and rescues us. He appears and our soul begins to understand our value to him. In the sending of Jesus, God demonstrates his care and his love for his children. Our sin separates us from him. His appearance announces that that separation no longer exists. We have been adopted into his family. We are priceless to him, so valuable that he would send his son to redeem us, to purchase us. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 9, verse 15 says of Christ, Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, 
so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Jesus' death, Jesus' coming, his death, his resurrection, all of this triggers an inheritance for the children of God. He is the mediator of this covenant. Jesus stands between us and the Father and declares us co-heirs, declares us to be those who benefit from his sacrifice. He has called those who are believers. This is the same term used in Romans 8. Those he called, he enabled them, he empowered them. It's the effectual call of the Father. It's saying, come, it's irresistible. This was one of Dr. Sproul's favorite theological topics. The irresistibility of the grace of God. He says... And I quote, the New Testament calls hope the anchor of the soul. Why? What is it that makes it certain? The answer is God's sure promises and the demonstration of his faithfulness in the history of Israel, in the lives of the apostles, and most clearly in the person and work of Jesus Christ. The old covenant was the law. It did not provide a way for people to be saved. Instead, it showed our desperate need for someone to be a permanent mediator between this holy God and we, a broken and unholy people. The prophets had promised a Messiah, and those who had clung to this promise set their hope, their confident expectation that this Messiah would one day come and rescue them, and he has. God's people have always rested secure in a confident hope, confident that God would provide, based largely on what he's done for them already. And his provision of Jesus is his penultimate expression of his love and care for his children. It is, if you will, the lens by which we now can clearly see that we are the adopted, beloved co-heir children of God. Speaking of lenses, uh, the good news is, is that LASIK surgery I had three weeks ago that went awry. I had a recorrection this past week, and now I can see 2020 at a distance. So you all look very great today. Yeah. Uh, fuzzy no longer. Um, but uh, it has uh, made it necessary for me to have reading glasses for the stuff that's up close and to now make my sermons in 15-point font. But other than that, um, uh, what happens is, is these glasses now become the means by which I can read my phone, my, my notes, uh, things that are, as I sit here without them on, stand here without them on, the text before me is fuzzy and not clear. It's there. I might be able from time to time to make out certain words, but now that I have reading glasses, given that my distance vision has been perfected, my clear vision now, I see clearly. This is the nature of Advent hope. It's, it's a lens through which we see and have great clarity about God's disposition towards us. It's what enables us to not fear judgment. It's what enables us to be able to celebrate what we sing about in Christmas carols, 
that Jesus had to die for our sins. We don't have to hide the fact that we're sinful anymore. We can celebrate that God has rescued us from that. We don't have to deny what we know is true about ourselves, let alone what we see ravaging our earth, the human nature that is broken and fallen. We can celebrate that a father has come to rescue us, a father has come to adopt us, that we have become inheritors. And Advent Hope announces this inheritance for you and me. Second thing we see from our passage in verses 13 and 14 is that Advent hope guarantees our inheritance. And this is really important to differentiate between the announcement of it and the guarantee of it. Because many of us have heard the announcement for most of our life, and yet we have a difficult time embracing and enjoying the truth of the Scriptures that if we are in Christ, there's no need to fear Your future is secure. Verses 13 and 14 read, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire the possession of it to the praise of his glory. This particular passage of Scripture was fundamental for me in terms of my coming to a place of being secure in Christ. And it was one of the main reasons that I not only felt compelled to go into ministry in the first place, but certainly it lies at the basis for why we felt we wanted to be a part of starting a church like PRISM. And that's because, like me, many were raised in church and heard a message through Christian churches that the promise of eternal life was something you could only wish for. You'd kind of sort of hope you were going to get to go to heaven. So you'd say things like that. I, I hope it works out well for me. I'm trying hard. Hope it works out okay. Hope the scales of God's justice kind of balance in my favor. That's not the biblical hope. That's not what this particular section of Ephesians 1 talks about. Hope is a certainty that fuels your desire to love God in a religious system where you're trying to earn your way to God. Loving God becomes the means to earning or securing an eternal salvation. And so naturally, you'd never know until you saw God face to face whether or not it was going to go okay for you. So you'd hope it would go okay. But that's not what Christian hope is. It's, I'm secure because of what Christ has done, and therefore I have hope. Like a final exam that you know the answers to already, or, or you know that you're going to actually have a vacation coming soon, you are buoyed in your spirit. So even in the darkest of times, you and I get to rest assured that one day, regardless of what's going on now, we have a secure hope. Something is going to be uh, actualized in your eternal existence. You are going to live forever with Christ. You fast forward now to my growing comprehension of what biblical hope really was, which is this certainty that Jesus has purchased our salvation. 
that his death completely and totally satisfied the wrath of God towards sin. And that by placing my trust in his gift of salvation, I'm saved. God is praised. And this is the thing that is twice mentioned in these passages, that this is to the praise of his glory. One of the reasons that we focus so much on what Jesus has done for us in rescuing us is that he would be the one that would actually be praised for this. In a system of good works, you actually at some level feel like you get to take pride in the fact that you're working this thing out and you're earning your way through. You can't even really love God if you don't know you're going to heaven. And what I mean by that is, If you think you can love God, but at the same time, what you're doing is kind of obligating him to give you salvation, what you're doing is not really love for God. It's self-centered. I'm doing good works, which are good to do, but if I'm doing them to somehow or another in my head justify myself or make me think that, well, now, because I've done the good things, God's sort of obligated to give me this eternal life. We're missing the point. It's just for the glory of Christ, and it's also for our best that we would be able to have a secure hope, a hope that is based in what Jesus has done. It honors him when you celebrate the certainty of your salvation. It isn't bragocious. It it isn't pride. It's the antithesis of pride. It's saying, I'm a mess. I don't deserve this. I was given this as a gift. Do you take pride in the Christmas gifts that you open? I earned this Christmas gift. Then it really wasn't a gift, was it? It was do you. You know, when you open a gift from somebody, you go, thank you. Thank you. This is the security of our salvation brought to us by his son, Emmanuel, God with us. This passage in Ephesians, particularly verses 13 and 14, says the following. I want to give you kind of a a modern translation. I want to transliterate this for you, if you will, into our vernacular. When we heard the truth about the good news of salvation and believed, in that moment, the Holy Spirit brought new life to our souls and actually came to live within us. The sealing of the Holy Spirit is what guarantees our inheritance. This language is not by chance. The word seal is significant. It is the same word used in Matthew twenty-seven sixty-six to describe the sealing of Jesus' tomb. The same way that official Roman correspondence was sealed with wax and a signet ring, not to be broken by anyone but the recipient of the correspondence. If the carrier were to break the seal or anyone were to break the seal, it was under the threat of punishment of death. We, by the presence of the Spirit living in your soul, if you are a Christian, have been sealed by the Holy Spirit unbreakable not ever to be severed the apostle peter wrote this in first peter 1 3 through 5 blessed be the god and father of our lord jesus christ according to his great mercy 
He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. The Spirit of God living in you secures you. Jesus, the resurrected Savior, stands and mediates between us and the Father. You couldn't be any safer than you are right now. When I first truly believed this, it produced Advent hope in me. Real hope. It is what made me want to tell others about Jesus. It's what made me want to say, you know what, I'm going to give my life to proclaiming this. Uh, It's what makes people do good things. Not because I'm trying to get God to love me, but because he couldn't have made it any clearer to me that he does. And now, secure in that, confident in what Jesus has done for us, we have a living hope. Dr. Sproul reflected with these words, quote, Scripture says, the just shall live by faith, which doesn't mean believing something when you're not sure if it's true. It means that the just shall live by trusting God. Paul distills the essence of the Christian life when he says, rejoice in your hope. Since our joy is vested in the future, that God promises for his people. Our joy as strangers and sojourners in this valley of tears is that God has prepared a place for us, a better world that will be consummated at Christ's return. A better world that Dr. Sproul sees with 2020 vision today. As a student of Dr. Sproul's, I learned a lot about systematic theology As a future college professor, I learned one of the most important things that will make your students love you a lot, and that is providing for them an exam study guide. This was why Dr. Sproul's classes were, some people said, easy. And they were only easy if you paid attention in class, which wasn't hard to do, because he was a fairly dynamic communicator. And you took good notes, which required some discipline. But before the exam, he would give you a list of some 40 topics. He said, you know, these 40 things could be on the exam. I'm going to pick 20. That's a great gift. Because then it's not like, hey, listen, this whole semester, whatever I talked about, whatever might have been in any footnote in the book, you're responsible to know it all. So come prepared to lose. I mean, that's kind of sort of what you felt like in some classes. And Dr. Sproul's like, hey, listen, I know what we've talked about. I want to test to make sure you know it. Here's the body of things I'll, I'll exam you on, and, and may God and the force be with you. And so going into his exams, if you studied, there was a lot of peace. There really was. There was, it was a lot of hope. I, I'm going to do well on this. I know what's going to be on this test, and, and I've got what I need to pass it. And in, and in much the same way, I, I reflect on what I've learned from Scripture and enjoyed as a believer in Jesus and a student of Dr. Sproul's and 
really a student of Christianity, which is that Jesus has provided all that we need. This final exam we're going to have, he's already aced that for us, and we're getting credit for his scores. We are going to stand before the Father, but we need fear not a thing. See, this reality, if it can sink deep down in your soul, changes the dynamics not only of the way you see God, but the way you interact with other people. Having been forgiven much, you are called to forgive others. Having been loved much, you are called to love others much. It is what moves and drives us, a confident hope, what we sing, a thrill of hope. If you're weary, a weary world rejoices because yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. And like all experiences of real Advent hope, it causes you, as we sing, to fall on your knees, to hear the angels' voices. O night divine, O night when Christ was born. May this Advent, we be a people who receive with joy the gift of secure hope given to us by our Savior. Let us pray.